This is Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. We are looking into the Hoosier National Forest and the Charles C. Deem Wilderness Area within it. Last week, we explored recent legislation introduced by Senator Mike Braun, which would expand the boundaries of the wilderness area. This week, we dive deeper into the history of the land and what it was before it was a wilderness area. During our research on the history of the Hoosier National Forest, one thing we noticed is that most of the history centers around European settlers. The U.S. Forest Service does acknowledge that there were people living here before the colonists, but does not go into much detail about who, when, and where. We were curious to learn more about what the Hoosier National Forest was like before there was a wilderness area, and before what the Forest Service dubs the Pioneer Era. To learn more, we spoke with Indiana University Professor of History and Native American and Indigenous Studies, David Nichols. My name is David Nichols, and I'm a professor of history and Native American and Indigenous Studies at Indiana University, Bloomington. I'm a specialist in Native North American history and in the history of early America. Nichols shared with us a history lesson surrounding the North American indigenous peoples and cultures that have lived in Indiana and surrounding areas. There are many places to begin the story of Native people in in Indiana. Um, The Miamis, for instance, say that they have always been here and that they originated from what they call the coming out place, which is the headwaters or rather the mouth of the St. Joseph River, where it empties into Lake Michigan. Archaeologists have determined that human beings were present in North America by about, I believe, 20,000 years ago, if not earlier, are the the oldest currently accepted findings. And ethno-historians, that is to say, people who study the history of indigenous people, estimate that there were people in southern Indiana by about 14,000 years ago. And most likely, the first human beings in Indiana entered the boundaries of the modern state from the south, because the northern part of Indiana was still covered with glaciers uh, until about 10,000 years ago. So the, the state was sort of settled by people from south to north. And for much of the period up until about 3,000 years ago, uh, the native population in Indiana was semi-sedentary, which means they they would live in one particular, uh, people would live in one particular site for a few months, and then they would move uh, to others, uh, and had a blended economy based on fish on hunting, mostly small game, and on the gathering of wild plant foods. And this this would become, uh, or would remain somewhat typical of indigenous and actually early white settler diets uh, in the region until about um, really the 19th century. By about 3,500 years ago, some of the native people in Indiana were beginning to farm. They were cultivating what are called North American cultivars or North American domestic plants, namely sunflowers and squash. Uh, and then about 1,500 years ago, uh, people in the Midwest began to acquire and cultivate maize, which were corn. 
seen as the archetypal Native American uh, farmed plant, but it spread from Mesoamerica to the rest of, of the of the continent. And uh, the spread to this region was relatively slow because uh, Native people had to develop varieties that would grow um, with a, a shorter in a shorter growing season with with fewer frost free days. Uh, so agriculture comes to the Great Lakes region uh, late by North American standards, uh, but much earlier than historians who merely focus on the white population of, of the Midwest would, would guess. Uh, that is to say about 1,500 years ago. Nickel shared both the Miami's origin story and a historian's research on just how far back the Miami have lived here. I think it's important to teach both of those origin story. It is not always easy to reconcile them with one another, um, but I don't think they're entirely incompatible insofar as the Miami creation story isn't attached to a particular timeline um, and isn't intended, I think, to create a chronology. It's intended rather to say, this is where we're from, We have, and this is what we have a particular connection to, which is the waters of Indiana. Um, the Miami name means downstream people, and I suspect that that is because, or rather that refers to their pattern of settlement in the protohistoric period from the headwaters of the Miami up in present-day Fort Wayne uh, down to approximately present-day Vincennes or a little further south. He talks more about the Miami peoples later, but first, we're going to go back even further in time. The earliest evidence of human towns and settlements in the Midwest goes back to when the Adena, Hopewell, and Mississippian societies inhabited the region. There were four settled cultures in Indiana and in the lower Midwest uh, to which archaeologists have attached particular names, usually based on what are called archaeological type sites, i.e. this is where, this is the name of the site where we first began to examine that, where we modern archaeologists began to examine this culture. The first two of those were the Adena and the Hopewell cultures, both of which were centered in the upper Ohio Valley, but which had communities in southern Indiana. Uh, and they were distinguished, uh, at least by archaeologists, by building uh, large burial mounds and uh, earthen structures, sometimes in the form of animals effigy mounds, as, as they're called. Following the Hopewell culture, the Ohio and Mississippi valleys were uh, settled by a, or rather they were culturally dominated by a culture called the Mississippian culture. And the Mississippians built very large settlements, some of which um, we can only call cities because they had up to 10 or 15,000 people living in them. If you've been to western Illinois and visited the Cahokia State Park uh, mm-hmm. and UNESCO Heritage Site, you will have been to the site of the largest of these cities. The Mississippians, or, or one of their groups, or one of their um, communities, uh, built a large town here in Indiana, southern Indiana, which is now called Angel Mound, after the family that originally owned the farm where the excavations took place. And like other Mississippian communities, Angel Mound seems to have been a large town with about a thousand people. So small by Mississippian standards, but but pretty large by 
by town standards mm-hmm. uh, in the pre-modern era, uh, with temple platforms and with a number of subordinate farming villages in the area that provided food uh, to the to the community, which implies that in Angel Mounds there were also there was also a specialization of labor, and people who were not just farmers but also warriors, priests, craftspeople. Uh, we estimate that Angel Mounds as a community lasted for quite some time, about 400 years. Nichols explained that there was a little ice age that historians believe pushed people to move further south. This little ice age, which marked a period of regional cooling, especially in the North Atlantic region, took place from the early 1300s to around 1850. And the site was probably gradually abandoned in around 1400 CE, so about 600 years ago, uh, most likely due to climatic stresses that accompanied the Little Ice Age. And um, if your listeners aren't familiar with that, that's a period of, of much lower average temperatures um, that uh, gripped the Northern Hemisphere from about 1300 CE to about 1800, so actually for a very long time. And uh, there were several periods or several lengthy multi-decade periods during the Little Ice Age where global temperatures actually fell quite low uh, and caused a number of crises in, in Europe, among other places. So it's, it's likely that one of those periods of depressed temperatures and increased drought um, made communities like Angel Mound less liable. We know that there was at least one sort of late Mississippian culture in Indiana after Angel Mounds was mostly abandoned. I say mostly because people probably still went there to perform ceremonial functions. And that last culture was is called the Cayborn, uh, Wellborn culture by archaeologists. And that was uh, a culture whose members lived mostly in small villages, but they seemed to have been bound together into some kind of a confederacy. Uh, so there were, in short, um, fairly substantial settlements uh, in southern Indiana from about 3,000 years uh, before present uh, until the beginning, well, really until the present day. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were intensive farmers in the region as early as 3,500 years ago, but certainly by the time that uh, Native Midwesterners began to adopt uh, adopt corn and beans cultivation about 1,500 years ago. Nichols shared that later in the 17th and 18th century, four main groups of peoples settled themselves in southern Indiana, the Miami, the Shawnee, the Delaware, and the Potawatomi. Historically, there were four Native groups with uh, land claims and or settlements in southern Indiana. And some of them also had uh, settlements and land claims in northern Indiana. Uh, the Miamis were probably the most widespread. And well, the historian Stephen Warren um, posits or hypothesizes that they originated, the Miamis may have originated with a culture called the Fort Ancient Culture in southeastern Indiana, um, which is not to say that their own story about originating from the coming out place from the, the, the uh, waters of the St. Joseph River in Lake Michigan is incorrect. Both things could be true, just at different points in the timeline. But in any event, if, if Warren's hypothesis is correct, it means that the Miamis were, 
and their ancestors were in Indiana at least six or seven hundred years ago, and probably much earlier. Um, they settled the Wabash River Valley pretty, as I say, pretty much from the headwaters all the way down to the mouth, uh, at, uh, where the confluence of the Wabash and Ohio rivers is. Um, by the end of the 17th century, and there were, I would say, several dozen towns and villages in the Miami Confederacy, which included two other native groups that were Miami, but which whites often identified as belonging to other nations, and those were the Weas, who resided kind of in the central Wabash Valley between Lafayette and Terre Haute, and then the Piancashaws, who resided further south toward Vincennes. The um, second nation with settlements and land claims in southern Indiana were the Lenape, or Delawares, and they were migrants from the modern Delaware and Hudson River Valley on the East Coast. Their ancestors were essentially driven to migrate first to western Pennsylvania and then to Ohio and then to the White River Valley of by white settlers. So they arrived in the region um, a bit later than other Native people and settled in Indiana largely to try to acquire some kind of refuge uh, from combative and occasionally murderous white settlers. And the Delawares mostly settled in the White River Valley, so they, they may have had the most substantial towns in southern Indiana um, in the early 19th century. A third group that settled all through the state, including in southwestern Indiana, were the Shawnees. They're, they originated most likely culturally in the upper Ohio Valley. They were almost certainly descended from the Fort Ancient culture that I mentioned. Uh, then underwent a period of migration from about the 17th through the 18th centuries during which many of them moved to the southeast. In fact, the name Shawnee means southerner. Uh, and then in the second half of the 18th century, Shawnee people, Shawnee um, bands, began to return to the Ohio Valley and eventually to settle, usually with the Miami um, in villages in Indiana. And the fourth uh, group that has territorial claims southern Indiana, although most of their settlements were in the north were the Potawatomi. And um, they were the largest Native American community in, or Native American nation in Indiana by population at the time of removal in the 1830s. They were part of a group, a large group of Native people uh, referred to as the Anishinaabe. And when I say referred to, I mean that's what they call themselves, because Anishinaabe means the people. Their ancestors migrated, this is, this is according to their own story, mm -hmm. uh, into the Great Lakes region about 1200 or 1300 CE from uh, somewhere in northeastern Canada. That's according to their migration story. And the Potawatomis and their kinfolk, the Ojibwas and the Ottawas, say that they settled in the Great Lakes region because there was wild rice uh, which was an aquatic grain that Anishinaabe, and including Potawatomi women, uh, harvested in, I believe, in the fall, but I'm not 100% sure. And 
in fact, the Potawatomis in Indiana uh, continued to harvest wild rice until the removal era. Uh, and there are efforts now by Potawatomi scholars to try to determine where the wild rice uh, stands that they harvested were, because they've mostly been drained mm-hmm. uh, for agriculture in the 19th and 20th century. Nichols shared that European colonists arrived on the scene in the early 18th century. The first yeah. Europeans arrived in Indiana uh, in the 18th century or a little before. And those, those are predominantly French fur traders, uh, some of whom intermarry with native families, uh, and some French missionaries, although um, there are not any substantial mission settlements or, or um, Christianized settlements outside of Vincennes. Uh, prior to the time of the American Revolution. There are, there are Native people who are Christian converts, at least nominally, uh, but there aren't any large mission settlements like there were in, in New Mexico or Canada. Um, the Shawnees begin to establish their settlements in the state, or perhaps I should say reestablish, because they were probably Fort Ancient people, Shawnee ancestors, uh, in present-day Indiana before uh, 1400. Uh, but the Shawnees begin to reestablish settlements in Indiana no later than, I think, the 1790s, which is about the time that Delawares begin to establish townships on the White River. Uh, and then the Potawatomis have a fairly large number of villages and towns in northern Indiana before 1800. I believe that the first Potawatomi settlements in northern Indiana date to at least the 17th century, um, but some may have explored the region beforehand. The, they were part of the Anishinaabe, who, by their own telling, uh, migrated to the Great Lakes region about 700 years ago. Um, so they, there wouldn't have been Potawatomi in Indiana before that, at least not according to their own uh, story. And I don't think that archaeological, there's archaeological evidence that there were very many prior to 1600. Following the American Revolution, the new U.S. government started to take the land and sell it, removing Native Americans from the land they lived on. Anyway, by the time of the American Revolution, all four of the Native groups were settled in Indiana, or were about to be. And the Revolutionary War established the United States as a new government, uh, and a new government that had a at least nominal claim to all of the land east of the Mississippi River, uh, which Great Britain had simply turned over to the United States in the peace treaty. And the revolution also created a American government that was in debt, uh, quite severely in debt, actually, because the war for American independence had been expensive, and like most wars, it had been financed uh, through borrowing. And the United States Congress, and then later the War Department, which was responsible for U.S.-Indian relations, looked to the lands in what they called the Northwest Territory and what we would simply call uh, Indian country or Native American territory um, as a potential solution to the debt problem. That is to say, they thought, well, if we can find some white people with money, uh, we can trade them the land that supposedly is ours in exchange uh, for money with which to pay off our debt, our national debt. The problem was that land, of course, was already owned by Native people, 
and the native nations of Indiana were not enthusiastic about surrendering their land to the United States so that it could pay its debt, especially since uh, at least some of the native peoples of Indiana had been allies of Great Britain during the War for Independence. So there was a, a period of several decades after the American Revolution um, where the United States alternately waged war on native people in what it again called the Northwest Territory and later called Indiana Territory, uh, and then alternately tried one way or another to finagle land succession treaties, that is to say land surrender treaties, uh, from Native American nations. And the ultimate outcome of that process was that the United States um, acquired and sold enough Native American land, mostly in the southern part of Indiana, um, to allow white settlers to colonize um, the southern part of the state, pretty much from the latitude of Terre Haute southward, uh, which is where the, the major white settlements in Indiana were right up until, the, I think, the Civil War. I think the largest town in Indiana actually was Madison, down on the Ohio River for, for some decades in the middle of the 19th century. Um, and once that large white population was entrenched, so to speak, in Indiana, uh, they formed potential reservoir of, of gunmen who could and actually did coerce the remaining Native people into leaving. Uh, and they also formed an interest group in Washington, D.C., because in, once Indiana became a state, it had congressmen and senators who could speak on behalf of it's white settlers' interests. But it had essentially a, a lobbying group or a, a, a group of spokesmen in Washington, D.C. who could pressure the U.S. government into acquiring the remaining native lands within the state. And the U.S. government did so through a series of mostly coerced uh, treaties between 1818 and 1840 or so. And it was under those treaties the U.S. Uh, the native people in the state who were still there to leave and to move to what the U.S. called Indian Territory, uh, and which we now call the state of Kansas. That was to be the site where the U.S. government would relocate those Native Americans who lived uh, in the Old Northwest, whereas Oklahoma, or uh, the southern part of Indian Territory, would be for Native people from the southeast. Nichols said that although the Miamis were forced to move to Kansas, Slowly but surely, many returned to their homeland over time. And I, I want to make sure I, I bring that up. The Miamis were, or a large number of them, were compelled um, by federal troops and I think by state militia as well to leave their remaining communities in northern Indiana in 1846. Uh, the nation had been compelled to sign a, a removal treaty and then had managed to delay removal for a few years. Uh, but then the United States forced uh, a large number of the Miamis to leave Indiana and move to Kansas. And after about a decade or so went by, some of those removed Miamis began to come back in small groups, and like not surreptitiously, but in small groups, so they wouldn't be noticed, Indiana. And up until the end of the 19th century, the United States government recognized that there were still Miamis in Indiana and let them have their own agent and their own recognition and then terminated it because it 
it only wanted to maintain one Miami, recognized Miami government, I think in about 1895. But that is all by way of saying that the number of Miamis in Indiana today, I think, is at least equal to, if not greater than, the number of Miamis in Oklahoma. Or rather, that was the case in 1960. Um, today, the, the numbers, I think, are, are, are different. But there was a period in the 20th century when there were more Miamis in Indiana than in, than in Oklahoma, even though uh, that was supposed to be more than a century after removal. Um, so the U.S. couldn't, as it turned out, effectively prevent uh, at least some Native people from returning to their homeland, and particularly uh, found it difficult to prevent Native people from returning or staying if they had the resources to go to the same land offices that white settlers were using and buy back part of their land. Um, the Pocahontan Band of Potawatomi, who resides in southern Michigan, very near the state border, um, bought back, or some of them bought back at least, some of their lands from the U.S. government in the 1830s. Uh, and when the U.S. government tried to make them remove a state judge in Michigan, Epaphroditus uh, Ransom, um, blocked the order and just said, you can't. They own their land um, by the laws of the United States, not by treaty or any other any other means. And so they're still there. Uh, and in fact, recently, the Pocahontan Band bought additional land, I think, for their headquarters in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, so there is a recognized Native nation that has land now in Indiana, as well as a recognized Native nation, the Miami uh which has a large number of its affiliates, that is to say, the Indiana-Miami, living here in the Hoosier State. Nichols shared his perspective on wilderness and how the Hoosier National Forest and the Charles C. Deem Wilderness Area, in his eyes, are not true wilderness areas. I am reluctant to, to call any place in North America certainly a wilderness, just because the, that implies that it is a region that human beings have never set foot in. And I suspect that Pretty much every square mile, if not every square foot of North America, has seen some type of human activity in the last 20,000 plus years. So I, I don't know that there are any authentic wildernesses in North America. Now, the Wilderness Act has its own language. Um, as a historian, I usually confront wilderness as meaning what 17th and 18th century European American colonists meant to which is to say a land that no human being has ever touched. I don't think there's there's any place in North America of which that can be said to be true. Uh, I think uh, we today our wildernesses are very cultivated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's part, I think, of the goal of, of state and national park services, is to create an experience that is both wild but also safe. And uh, making, I mean, and I, I think for Native that was kind of how they looked at regions that were that whites would call wilderness. Um, you know, we don't have our settlements here, but we're very familiar with this place. Many of us have been in it. We've given names to the natural features so that we know what they are. We're familiar with uh, the animals that that live there and how dangerous they are actually likely to be. I.e., that coyotes aren't necessarily that dangerous, although Europeans felt differently. Um, so they had a greater familiarity with the land and the flora and the fauna that made them look at wilderness as something familiar and indeed to be used and, cult- and, and almost cultivated, which was not true of the, the less adept, 
came with a greater degree of ignorance. You've been listening to Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate. To read the full article written and photographed by Stephen Higgs, visit limestonepostmagazine.com. To submit feedback to WFHB, you can email deepdive at wfhb.org.